So we've been talking this month about Christmas stories, and more specifically Christmas movies, and how they all basically have the same plot. Um, well, we're going to talk about one that tweaks it just a little bit, uh, and this is because it's a Christmas story written by John Grisham, and he's just a little better writer than most of the people who make Christmas movies. Um, so uh, who's seen the movie Christmas with the Cranks? A few of you, okay. Um, uh, that comes from a book called Skipping Christmas, written by John Grisham 15 years ago or so. Uh, and the basic plot of, of Skipping Christmas uh, goes like this. Uh, it starts out, uh, we see Luther Crank, he's sitting in his basement, uh, balancing his checkbook, looking at his budget, and he comes up with a figure. And he goes upstairs and he finds his wife, Nora, and he says, Nora, do you realize we spend nearly $7,000 a year on Christmas? Between charitable giving and hosting a party and buying presents for people, we spend $7,000 a year on Christmas, and I say no more. Let's skip Christmas. Just once, we'll skip Christmas. Instead of doing the Christmas stuff, we will go on a cruise, just you and me. It'll be great. And this sets the expectation for the movie. And, and, and as soon as their neighbors uh, get wind of this, they are all incredibly judgmental. Which we might be as well, right? Like, what do you mean you're skipping Christmas? You can't skip Christmas. Like, we all come to your Christmas party every year. How can you skip Christmas? But they, they endure, and, and their expectations are raised. They start uh, going to the tanning bed at the mall in order to get you know, a base tan so that they don't burn on their cruise. And, and they buy new uh, uh, vacation clothes so they look like they're part of Miami Vice or something, right? Um, but then the bottom falls out. When their daughter Blair, who's been uh, working with the Peace Corps down in Belize, uh, calls from the Miami airport and says, Hey, I'm going to be home for Christmas. Surprise! And for the last month, they've been planning on skipping Christmas. They don't have a tree. They don't have their party ready. They don't have presents for anybody. Like, everything has just gone sideways now. But their hope is restored as all of their neighbors, who've been frustrated with them, rally around them and make sure they can have their party and have the Christmas uh, that their daughter Blair is expecting when she comes. And she brings with her a fiancé. So all hope is restored and it is uh, the, the Christmas that, that they uh, weren't expecting but was better than they hoped. Christmas movies all deal with expectation. Because at a certain level, we all understand this season as a time of expectation. We're expecting the, the parties that are coming towards the end of the month. We're, we're expecting the crazy crowds on Stringtown Road that make it impossible to go to Cane's just to get a stinking chicken finger. <laughs> Sorry, did I just overshare there? There might be a little Luther crank in me. What, what can I say? 
But we are living in a season of expectation. We're expecting the new year. We're expecting the change in season. We're expecting all these little things which add up to a big thing here in the month of December. And together we're looking at what were the Jewish people's expectations of the coming Messiah. And what are our expectations for Jesus as he comes once more to us? In Zechariah chapter 6, we read one of the central uh, passages that feeds the understanding and filling out the fullness of who the Messiah would be. Uh, Not just a king, but also the high priest for the people. In verse 9 we read, The word of the Lord came to me, Take silver and gold from the exiles, and go this same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make a crown, and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua. And tell him that this is what the Lord Almighty said. Here is a man whose name is Branch. And part of of what we kind of miss as non-first century Jewish people is just how much this act is dripping with prophetic expectation. Uh, This isn't simply going to the high priest and saying, Hey, you can be our king. No, this is, this is a, a looking forward to the Messiah. This is setting the expectation for what this coming uh, priest king, as David's phrase was, which I like that, that's good priest king, what this priest king will be. So if we are thinking about the Messiah, not just in terms of a king like, like David or Solomon, but also as a priest... We need to remember what it was that the priestly expectation for uh, the Jewish people was at the time. And to do this, you go to the book of Leviticus. Because in Leviticus, there are 202 verses about the proper role of the priest in the life of the people of God. But we won't go through all 202. We're going to do the Reader's Digest version. Uh, In a nutshell... The priest for the nation of Israel helps the people to worship in a way that honors and pleases God. That's it. The role of the priest is they help the people to uh, worship God in a way that pleases and honors God. Uh, So because of this, they become um, sort of the managers of the sacrificial system. So someone comes and says, I've, I've sinned, I need to make a sacrifice to be right with God. It's the priests that, that orient that life of the sacrificial system. It's, it's the priests who play uh, the biggest role on the Day of Atonement. It's only the high priest who can enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant uh, sits and where God's earthly residence is, is captured. So one of the the big roles for a priest in the sacrificial system is that the priest becomes an intercessor. The priest becomes the conduit between God and the people. And this 
continues on into uh, our 21st century expectation of what it is to be a priest. Now, as Protestants, uh, we sometimes get a little sensitive uh, about the mention of priests. Um, because, by golly, we had a Reformation 500 years ago, specifically so we wouldn't need to rely on those stinking priests. Right? I mean, am I, am I, is my, my Reformation history close? Okay. Yeah. And one of the reforms that we hold most near and dear to us is the belief that we no longer need a priest to intercede for us. To absolve us of sin, uh, or to tell us what the Bible says. The, the way the Christian church has interpreted pre- priesthood is that a priest uh, is the intercessor in the sacraments. Um, so for us as, as Protestants, we only have two sacraments, uh, communion and baptism. Uh, but in some traditions of Protestantism, you don't even need someone ordained to do those two things. I mean, Methodism has sort of a weird... Uh, hybrid ordination theology, so we won't get into that. It's a ball of snakes. Um, but you, if we look at, uh, like, our brothers and sisters in Roman Catholicism, they have a really clear theology of ordination. The, the role of the priest is to preside over the sacraments in such a way that they are done uh, properly and in a way that honors and pleases God. So, communion is about helping the people worship God through this act in which uh, the body and the blood of Christ are made present with the people and is uh, medicine for the sin-sick soul. Um, Even something like confession, which is something that as Protestants we tossed away, and I'm not sure that was good for us. Uh, But this idea that, that the role of the priest is to hear the sins of the people and to absolve them of sin. To hear the sins and to say, you know, you are forgiven. Um, but like I said, as Protestants, this, this doesn't sound like this, this kind of, we're sensitive around this. We, we, we don't want to have to rely on someone else for any part of our spiritual lives. We don't need a priest to intercede for us, to absolve us of sin, or to tell us what the Bible says, but, but I think on closer inspection, we discover that this is precisely what it is that we need from Jesus. For Jesus to be our high priest truly does uh, open us up to the fullness of the ministry of God. When Jesus intercedes for us and forgives us our sins and teaches us the truth about who God is, it changes everything. The book in the New Testament that uh, spends the most time uh, talking about this role of Jesus as high priest is the book of Hebrews. Uh, Now, Hebrews is one of the oldest of the New Testament books. It was written uh, somewhere before the year 70. Um, We aren't entirely sure when, probably somewhere in that 55 to 70 range. Uh, And we aren't entirely sure who the author is, um, because unlike most of the epistles in uh, the New Testament where it says, you know, it is I, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, or, uh, or, or... I, Peter, writing to the 
the diaspora churches or, or what have you. Uh, Hebrews doesn't have, have authorship ascribed to it. Um, our smartest scholars think it might be Barnabas from the book of Acts or Apollos from the book of Acts uh, because the writing is really clever and sophisticated and um, it, is, uh, it is a form of Greek that you would ascribe to someone who's really well educated. But this is a, a book that is written to Jewish Christians who are having a crisis of faith. Uh, they're gathered in Jerusalem um, and the pressure to return to the old covenant and the old ways of doing things in Judaism is strong. And starting in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the author of Hebrews makes this case for why the, uh, the priests at the temple who are living under the old covenant, why that is not going to be sufficient in the way that Jesus as our high priest is sufficient. Why that is a, a shadow of the reality that God has for us in Jesus. So this begins in, uh, in, in chapter 4. Um, you know, the author says, Since we have such a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly hold to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne with grace and with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then for three chapters, uh, the author goes into greater detail, uh, talks more about this role of being the king and priest together and uses uh, the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, uh, to talk about this. Now that is a... Uh, rabbit hole that if we jump down, there's no way we'd beat the Lutherans to lunch. So we're just going to leave it at uh, Melchizedek is there. You can read about him in Genesis 14, in Psalm 110, and in the book of Hebrews. And if you want to study it more, I encourage you to. But we also want to beat the Lutherans to lunch, right? Right. Uh, so picking back up in chapter 8. The author says, now the, point, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If we were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law, and they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. It cannot be overstated how important for us it is that Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. 
Because in the same way uh, that the nation of Israel out in the wilderness during the Exodus was absolutely reliant on, uh, on the, uh, the priests who were the sons of Aaron, um, as absolutely crucial as that was, for the people to, to experience salvation and to experience uh, forgiveness and to experience atonement. In the same way, Jesus, Jesus fulfills that role in the new covenant seated at the right hand of the Father. I, I, I know that the language of priesthood, as Protestants, we can be a little sensitive around that. But we got to get over it. Because we need a priest. We need a, a, a high priest who can go before the Father and intercede for us. Who can make atonement for our sins. Who can put us in right relationship with the Father once again. In the same way that the Aaronic priests were the ones who managed the sacrificial uh, system that brought atonement for the Jewish people, Jesus is the sole source and manager of our atonement in the New Covenant. And we are called to trust Him. To trust that He truly does have the power to make atonement for sin. To trust that He truly has the power to bring us into right relationship with the Father. Uh, to trust that He is truly leading us into the future that God has for us. Because the reality is we cannot worship God rightly outside of the power of Jesus. We cannot know the Father except through the Son. He is our high priest now and forever. And this is good news. Because we have a high priest who we can uh, trust completely. In Leviticus, uh, there is a whole section on what to do when the high priest sins. So, you know, you have when the people sin, when uh, just any old priest sins, and then when the high priest sins. But we have a high priest who is without sin. We have a high priest who is able to enter into the presence of the Father and intercede for us. Who's able to bring us full atonement for sin and the restoration of life. And that is good news. Let's pray. Most holy and gracious God, we thank you that Jesus is our high priest. That in the power of your love and your Holy Spirit, through the new covenant, Jesus brings atonement for our sins. Lord, we confess that there are times when we've tried to do it on our own. Or we've thought, well, if I just try a little bit harder, 
maybe you'll love me just a little bit more. You know, if, if, I can, if I can manage my behavior just a little bit better, maybe you'll love me just a little bit more. You know, we've bought into the, the lie of the evil one that we are only forgiven when we figure it out ourselves. But Lord, the good news is that you have chosen to forgive us and it's not about us. It's about your son, Jesus. The perfect and holy one. The firstborn of all creation. The creator of all that is seen and unseen. Our high priest who makes atonement for our sins and restores us to right relationship with you. Lord, give us the courage today to trust. To trust that your grace is sufficient. To trust in Jesus. And we'll give you the honor and the praise and the glory for you are worthy. Amen.